You need hydrogen, you need electrification, you need biomethane, you need efficiency savings. I mean, it's not sexy, but that's a really important part of the whole process of decarbonisation. We've covered plenty of ground so far in this mini-series, but we're yet to discuss hydrogen in space. I'm Elise Gatt, Senior Associate at Microsoft Alexander, and for Episode 9 of our Hydrogen mini-series, we're joined by Chris Dolman, a Business Development Manager for Clean Hydrogen at VOC South Pacific. As one of Australia's leading gas suppliers, VOC has a key role to play in the development of the hydrogen industry. As Chris explains, the social licence will be a vital part of the thriving sector, and that growth could go even further than expected by shaking up the space tech game. Make sure you're subscribed to the show to get the final episodes as we wrap up the series. And a big thanks to the Australian Hydrogen Forum for making this show possible. Now, here's Chris. So Chris Dolman, I look after our clean energy portfolio at VSC. Uh, we're part of a wider group, Lindy Group, and our core products are industrial gases. But um, for my role, it's focused on hydrogen, old and new uses, as well as LNG as a transition fuel and a few other large-scale refrigerants. So we're really looking at how we decarbonise ourselves and decarbonise our customers with hydrogen as one of those key vectors. I believe VOC launched Queensland's first renewable hydrogen project in 2019 up at your Bulwa site. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. Um, as with all hydrogen projects that were sort of the first to move, um, we had some challenges and some delays, but um, we are currently producing green hydrogen up at Bulwa Island, which is good. Um, there's a final component we've got to put through around the refueler, but um, yeah, no, that's gone it's been challenged, um, as most projects have been in the hydrogen space to date, but um, a lot of learnings for us, and we've shared a lot of them and continue to share them with wider industry so we don't all fall over the same hurdles. So could you tell us a bit more about uh, VSC's current work in the hydrogen space? So we've got um, the Bull Ryland project with a refueler going onto a, um, a site that will be announced in the next couple of weeks. Um, that's very likely to be the first commercial petrol station to have a refueler in Australia. So very exciting news. So that's that will be announced you know, early May, which is good. We did a lot of the work at Toyota, putting in their eco park, so the refuelling infrastructure down there. So that's probably the first large-scale refueler that's hit Australia and a really interesting project because they're covering everything from trucks to buses um, and forklifts, which is pretty neat. We actually did the first fast refill of a bus there in Australia probably in the last month, which was very exciting. So it's getting some really good learnings there. Um, and then we're now working um, with our friends at Fortescue um, over in the West to put in the refilling infrastructure in Christmas Creek, uh, which is an interesting and challenging project given the remote nature, the dust, the heat, et cetera. You know, all very exciting projects. And those are the announced ones. We're also working on a range of different mobility and ammonia projects behind the scenes. You mentioned there are a number of like really new uses for hydrogen and kind of where hydrogen's going. In Australia, I'm sure Elise will follow some of that up in a minute. I, I wanted to talk to you about old uses of hydrogen, which you kind of mentioned in your opening answer. So traditionally, it's probably good to just frame up for listeners, like what's hydrogen being used as traditionally in, in this context and how are you seeing that changing and why? Yeah, good question. So traditionally, hydrogen has been used as a molecule, not, a, not an energy source effectively. So you know, we supplied traditional sectors like margarine, um, obviously and not a sector that's growing significantly. Uh, there's a little bit of hydrogen that goes into coal-fired power stations. Again, not an industry we see as a growth sector. And then you've got some large-scale on-site applications, so producing ammonia, 
Uh, the world will need ammonia moving forwards for fertilisers and a range of different things. So that will be converted over time to renewable hydrogen. Uh, and our largest site is um, on a refinery where we basically have 25 tonnes, give or take, produced today for the refining process. So there's a lot of traditional uses. Um, if I break them down, you know, using them in power stations is probably going to fall over, fall, fall over over time as those are replaced with more renewable options. Margarine's future will be here for a while and we'll see what happens there. No, no comment on whether we're going to be all back on the margarine train. There's a bit of oilseed stuff. Um, and then you've got the ammonia sort of markets, which will continue to be pretty important. And ammonia will be potentially a big export vector. And then you've got used in biorefining. And, and where we see it happening for new stuff is starting with mobility. And then you move to the, the different applications, including export. You mentioned a couple of partners that you're working with in this space, uh, Fortescue being one. How important is that to sort of find like-minded partners to, to make sure that these projects sort of stack up? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So, I mean, hydrogen is very new in terms of new applications. Uh, we're lucky enough to have a very good technology stack. But these projects are very complicated in nature if you're going to make them commercially viable. Most of the larger ones will need some government support in the short term. And, you know, that's the same way the solar sector and others have developed. So that's, you know, how you make new industries work and how you can get to scale. Um, but for me, partnerships are key for this whole sector. Um, you know, you look at all the different people we work with, we all bring something different. So we can bring some technology and some old uses Others will bring new uses. So uh, I think partnerships are key to this sector, at least in the in the medium term. Um, and you look at the, you know, the traditional natural gas sector, I mean, that was all built on partnerships in terms of export facilities, et cetera. So I don't see this developing significantly differently, but it has been an interesting change. So I think um, most companies, including ourselves, probably two to three years ago, had the view that we could do it all ourselves. And technically we could, um, but I think... Um, that power and partnerships is really important and they need to be like-minded. So we typically work with people who have similar safety requirements, have longevity in them, and you know, but we're also open-minded. So if there's the right project proponent, then we'll work with anyone effectively. We've been speaking to a range of participants in the hydrogen um, supply chain and just would like your opinion on or what are the commercial realities of hydrogen right now and what do you see as the barriers to greater investment? In terms of commercial viability, we're actually pretty close to diesel parity. So I think uh, moving forwards on heavy transport is getting relatively close. I think um, we're pretty comfortable that we can put together a refuelling and production model for buses and heavy transport now. Uh, that's going to be pretty close to diesel. So that's good. There's still a bit of a gap in terms of the trucks or bus capital costs. Um, in terms of future markets, so ammonia and those sort of ones, they're a fair way away. If we were going to push the sector forwards quickly now, the way I would do it, um, and this is based on, you know, our understanding of where you can get volume, it would be around um, the different states investing in 100 hydrogen buses, as an example. That basically brings you in, you know, three tonnes a day production, most of the challenges of hydrogen are not technical. It's all around volume and, and offtake. So the best way I, I see for, for this to move forward is to, you know, incentivise that demand side of things. And we've seen that a little bit through New South Wales and their work with Energy Australia um, and Squadron. So I think that's an interesting way to do it. Uh, you know, we also need that 
um, volume to start building so that we can get scale, which is going to get the prices down. So, you know, we look at our sort of cost curves, the capital costs should be coming down. Um, it's a little bit problematic at the moment, given commodity prices are, um, you know, fairly, fairly high. But we do see that coming down in terms of efficiency. And then we've got to work on, you know, how do we get that, you know, cheap renewable energy to these sources as well. Um, and, you know, we've got a range of ideas and way we do that. I think, again, the New South Wales government's done a pretty good job in terms of reducing network charges. And I think that helps projects. Um, but for me, from a technical point of view, the, the real issue is demand. And I think um, if we were going to push hard on demand as a government, that would be through focusing on something like public transport where we can, you know, dedicate quite a bit of demand pretty quickly. And that will incentivise further production and bring down the cost curve for trucking and other sectors as they develop. You mentioned there that, you know, heavy transport probably is going to be the first domino to fall, so to speak. Do you have kind of a picture of what would immediately follow major investment and up, uptake in that area? The way I see it working, and, you know, time, time will tell you, um, is I can see buses going first. Um, I think trucks will take a little bit longer. Um, that's partially to do with the fact that, you know, typically the operating margins in that transport area are probably a little bit tight and, you know, it's highly competitive. So unless they're forced to by the likes of Woolworths or others, then they're probably not going to move to hydrogen or electric. There will be a point in the next sort of five to 10 where ammonia becomes potentially the export vector, but also cost competitive at scale. And I think that's coming. There's also some use cases that we're, we're doing overseas, which I think are really interesting. So trains, I think, are a really good one if you can't electrify them. So we've done the first train over in Germany, which is... Um, Super exciting, and we're actually working on a couple of train opportunities in Australia at the moment. So we're, um, you know, very excited to be moving towards that. There's also some neat opportunities coming in space. They're going to be niche, but we think, you know, liquid hydrogen is pretty key to the space sector, and I think um, we've got relationships in place to be able to move that forward as soon as we're ready. What we're also seeing is those industrial feedstock applications coming. So we're lucky enough to have, you know, other products in our range. So if I look at some of the large energy users, so Steelworks, for example, they can reduce their CO2 output by adding oxygen into their process, into the natural gas line. So that that is one way you can do it, and that might get you to 30 to 50% less carbon, and then you move to hydrogen over time, but that's a longer burn. But I think, um, you know, with decarbonisation, it's so challenging. Um, there are There's no one perfect solution. It's not hydrogen, it's not electrification, it's not biomethane, it's all of them. And I think, um, you know, all of these competing um, pieces and how they interact is key to, to hitting our climate targets, not just focusing on one vector anyway. I'm pretty keen to ask you about space because no one else on our show yet has mentioned that at all. We got as far as aviation, but we didn't get out of the atmosphere. So I wonder if you could expand on that. Like, what does that specifically look like? I'm assuming it's not a hydrogen-powered rocket putting a man on the moon, for example. The space sector is developing quite quickly in Australia. Um, and it's all about satellite technology. So we work with, and defence to an extent, but we work with people who are looking to put up satellites. They'll be looking, we've seen different business models, which could include replacing single satellites in Elon Musk's constellation. Australia is pretty neatly positioned because of our, um, we're in the Southern Hemisphere, we're relatively stable in terms of government. And we've got a few places that we can fire rockets that don't have unfriendly neighbours. Um, so there's a few safety benefits, but also unique flight paths. So we see um, the space sector developing pretty quickly in Australia. It's actually developed really well in New Zealand. And you've got people like Rocket Lab 
who are a significant player in the space sector internationally. You know, we see hypersonics who are hydrogen-powered rockets, which is super cool, a number of others, including Gilmore and others, coming to Australia. And um, they're already here, and some of the development's amazing. So you're sort of working with them not to develop their rockets. That's not our core skill, but um, because we can provide the fuel, whether it be oxygen, hydrogen, other things, um, we get to look under the bonnet periodically, and it's very exciting. Interested in your opinion on how important it is for the general community to understand hydrogen a bit more. So I'm just keen to understand uh, yeah, from your perspective how how industry should be communicating, if industry should be communicating more with the community about hydrogen and its, and its potential and, and how they should go about that. I think there's a couple of elements to it. So firstly, if you invented petrol today and said you were going to put a flammable liquid on someone's next to someone's house at a petrol station, people would say, no, that's bonkers. So we're sort of competing against um, grandfather rights to an extent, um, and people have a lot of uncertainty around hydrogen. I think um, there's also that cost piece that people don't understand as well. So I think um, you know we need to work on education generally, um, and that's pretty important. But um, at the same time, we need to be working on things like standards and getting that legislation right, because if we have people putting in equipment that blows up or has challenges, whatever that looks like, that's going to destroy the social licence anyway. You know, the advantage hydrogen should have if we have the right standards and the right equipment that's available now is we won't have those issues. So we're able to jump that to get social licence more quickly, which I think will be good. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, particularly at the moment, given the price of energy, I think if we can get that cost price right, I think people will be also more interested in it. If you can have the price right, environmental benefit um, and it's safe, I don't think many people have any issues with that. But everyone's risk profile is different. And, you know, one of the things we've come across with these hydrogen projects is previously it was an industrial gas project and no one was interested. Effectively went through all the regulatory piece. Now it says hydrogen and because it's mentioned in the news, there's a lot more focus on them, which is fine, um, but that adds complexity because um, a lot of people don't necessarily understand things like how to manage risk and what is an acceptable risk at an industrial site. For BSC, obviously, we have an ambition of zero incidents. But, you know, if you look at a a risk profile, it might say one incident in a million or something. And in some circumstances, that might be okay. And you never hit that because you have other safety pieces around it. Really, it's around educating at a high level people to understand the safety. And, you know, there's lots of legislation around it. And then it's around, you know, the different um, use cases and making them aware of it so they're comfortable because then they can spread the news of the things they've done and how successful they've been. There's obviously several different types of hydrogen. There's, you know, black, blue, green. Do you think there's a bit of misunderstanding among the public about what some of those terms actually mean? The colour piece is unhelpful, to be honest. So, you know, if we use the colour piece, we have a range of hydrogen in Australia at the moment. So I've got some grey stuff, I've got some green stuff, I've got some green stuff in New Zealand. Our ambition for all of that is to be, you know, low carbon over time or no carbon if we can avoid it. So we're actually involved in the GO certification scheme with the federal government to start defining that as not a colour that's arbitrary. Uh, My favourite hydrogen, by the way, is pink. That's nuclear hydrogen, less of an issue for Australia. But there's every colour of the rainbow, which is very unhelpful for anyone to understand. Where it'll go to is um, CO2 emissions per kilo or tonne of hydrogen. And I think that's much more relevant and something that people can understand because the colours are arbitrary. I do enjoy the 
different lobby groups on both sides pushing their barrow. I mean, in reality, even where we've got a grey source at the moment, if that means you can speed up bus trials and mean they can move to larger scale, which means you can invest in green, that's okay. The, the thing's the end goal, not trying to make it super expensive up front by, you know, requesting everything as green as green can be. That's that's a great ambition, but it's not necessarily practical. As long as you've got a pathway to more green or low carbon economy, that's that's the key piece for us, not being perfect up front. So one of the things we are going to discuss is sort of the guarantee of origin scheme. Um, it's obviously in the pipeline. And, and is that something that you think will shift that narrative significantly away from blue-green and straight into kind of what you mentioned in terms of that CO2 per EG of hydrogen? That's the ambition of it, yeah. Um, will it change things straight away? No, because people all have these historic things that they use to describe things. The ambition of that scheme is twofold. One is to get rid of everything that um, is confusing people. And the other one is to make sure that if we are to export hydrogen and you know replace the billions of dollars of coal and LNG over time, is to make sure that um, we don't have a scheme that is misaligned to someone who's importing. So there's no point us coming up with our own scheme if Japan, Korea, the EU come up with a totally different scheme because it just wipes us out of the market. So I see it as having two impacts. One is to get rid of the colour stuff because it's arbitrary. And the second one is to make sure that, you know, hopefully exports become a really important part of our economy, given our renewable assets. But if we get it wrong, then we're going to really limit our trading partners, which would be a bit of an own goal.